You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Bobby O'Brien from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled The Presence and Impact of Bishop John Bale in the Diocese of Ossery. Um, this paper will chart the course of John Bale's short career as Bishop of Ossery, um, mm. demonstrating why the religious climate of the time and the place made it nigh on impossible for his particular reform agenda to succeed in Ossery. It will show that his education and experience pre-Ossery affected his ability to liaise with local figures and the establishment within Dublin. It will show that a degree of toleration of doctrinal shift was acceptable to individual communities, as long as institutional changes, for example the destruction of religious artefacts, were not tampered with. People expected things to change, but not in a radical way. John Bale, although Bishop of Ossery for only six months, gives an insight, albeit a biased one, that was written for a London audience on the internal workings of a diocese in the south-east of Ireland and the effects of the Edwardian religious reforms. Although the dissolution of the monasteries and the Henrician Reformation was a decade after Bale's appointment to Ossery, it seems he found little had changed. Bale leaves us with his account of his dealings in Ossery in his works, most notably the vocation of John Bale. These writings, however, not only give an insight into the man and his reasonings for renouncing the papacy, but his thoughts on the laity, the clergy and his superiors, both inside and outside the church. The Diocese of Ossery had been a vacant see since 1550, when Milo Baron, an Augustinian canon, died. He was the last Bishop of Ossery who was appointed by the Pope in 1528. In 1549, a year before Bishop Barron's death, we can see that Ossery was not conforming to the new religious edicts that were set out by Edward. The Lord Deputy, Edward Bellingham, summoned all the clergy in Kilkenny, which included the Cathedral Chapter, to a meeting to find out why these religious reforms were not in place. It appears that even after this meeting, Ossery was slow to conform to the new religion, and the status quo had not really changed. This is the ossuary that John Bale found himself in in 1553. He was born in Suffolk in 1495 after a turbulent career which saw him go to prison, albeit briefly, and into exile twice. He died in 1536 and was interned in Canterbury Cathedral. Labelled with such terms as Bilius Bale, he was a controversial writer, historian, and during the mid-16th century, a time that was rife with religious upheaval. At the age of 12, he entered the Carmelite convent in Norwich and continued his education at Jesus College in Cambridge. 
After studying abroad, he received his Bachelor of Theology and Doctor of Theology from Cambridge. However, there appears to be no record of his, his achievements in Jesus College. This saw him rise quickly through the orders. He became Prior of Malden in Essex, then moved to Ipswich, Norwich, and in 1534 became Prior of Doncaster. It was around this time that Bale was accused of heresy and came under the scrutiny of Archbishop Lee of York. An excerpt from the Letters and Papers, Foreign and Domestic, of the reign of King Henry VIII, item 230, and dated to 1535, entitled A New Theology. There is a statement from one William Bowman that one bale, a white friar, sometimes prior of Doncaster, taught him about four years ago that Christ would dwell in no church made of lime and stone by man's hands, but only in heaven above, and in no man's heart in earth. As I have mentioned, this was dated to 1535. Bale allegedly to have said this to Bowman four years earlier, taking us back to a date of 1531, before the king's great matter and the dissolution. From this and other accounts within the same document, we can see that Bale, although not the only friar mentioned, was having doubts about his faith and Catholicism before the break with Rome, and this goes to show his radical Protestant views. Looking at Bale's writings, his attitude towards the laity and the clergy alike, and vice versa, we are unable to see a definitive breaking point from his Catholicism to Protestantism. We know he was teaching heresy in 1531, while still a friar of the Carmelites. And through Bale's writings, we are given an insight into indoctrinated Catholic who becomes disenchanted with his vocation. A duality that seems to be disjointed and hesitant in his early writings. And by continuing to edit his Carmelite history in the early years after his conversion... It shows the reader how, although it appears through his later writings, he was able to disassociate himself from his former Catholic self. This is probably why he had the impact he did upon the Diocese of Ostry. It appears he had a shared sense of community, but only if that community was of the same mind and religion as himself. It was around the time of the dissolution that Bale became a stipendiary priest at, Thorn at Thorndon in Suffolk and came under the wings of two influential men at court, the first being Baron Thomas Wentworth, to whom he attributes his conversion to Protestantism. The second, via his dramatist and political writings, was that of Thomas Cromwell. It was Cromwell who secured his relief from a very brief stay in prison during the dubious teachings and heresy charges that were brought against him. This patronage and protection changed in 1540, when Cromwell fell out of favour, and Henry began to rein in the Protestant views to bring in a more conservative approach to religion. Bale left for Antwerp, not wanting to be caught on the tail end of Cromwell's fall from grace. He returned from the continent on the death of Henry and after the coronation of Edward VI, hoping through his friends Thomas Wentworth and Thomas Darcy that he would gain a high ecclesiastical post in England. He was appointed the Rectory of St Mary's in Hampshire on his return, and at the same time his work, The Image of Both Churches, was published in London, a publication that had been banned from England in 1546 by royal proclamation. His desire for high office in England was not to be, 
and he was nominated by the king, whom he met himself in August 1552, to the See of Osry, which, after much procrastination on his part, for example, the pleading of old age, infirmity and poverty, he finally accepted the post in the October of that year. Bell, however, was not the first to be put forward for this bishopric. James Bicton, chaplain to St Ledger, and Leverus, preceptor of Gerald Fitzgerald, were all nominated and refused. It makes you wonder how someone who had just returned from exile could be elevated to bishop. Why was he sent there? Was it due to his publication of both churches? Was he too radical in his Protestantism for even the English court? It may have been due to the need for a man with force and conviction to bring about a change in the church in Ireland at the time. It was February 1553 by the time Bell reached Dublin for his consecration to the Bishopric of Oshra. He was accompanied by Hugh Goodacre, who was to become, for a very short time, the Archbishop of Armagh. They were to be indoctrinated by Archbishop of Dublin, George Brown, who, after a chaotic time in Ireland, was pragmatic of his duties and kept a status quo. By doing so, he kept both his job and the majority of his parishioners happy. Bale, on the other hand, was not about to do this and started as he meant to go on by protesting the non-conformance and bringing his consecration to a halt. He'd already seen by his arrival in Waterford that the 1549 prayer book was still in use and to him this was unacceptable, doubly so for his indoctrination. The feud between Brown and Bale continued, with Bale claiming that Brown took half of his salary for the first year. The death of Goodacre, who Bell alleges was poisoned by his own priests, and the fact that he himself was ill for several days after the consecration, was enough to lead him to believe that the church in Ireland was corrupt to its highest ranks. As an aside, the Loftus MS held in Marsh's library states that in the year 1549 the Mass was put down and the divine service was performed in English. It appears that this statement was not adhered to in Ireland. No parliaments were ever called during this period and therefore the second book was never ratified. The Act of Uniformity of 1552 and the new form of consecrating bishops had not as yet been adopted or sanctioned in Parliament. It was therefore not binding within the Irish Church at this time, something that Brown and Thomas Lockwood, the Dean of Christ Church, reiterated to Bale. For the consecration, Goodacre was at first happy for the first book to be used and tried to talk Bell round for the sake of peace. Before this, the consecration of Irish bishops had been in accordance with the pontifical and uniformed rites and so was laid down in Latin and Catholic service. The first book of common prayer that was used contained no form of ordination or consecration. However, by 1552, a new form had been introduced but was not in use in Ireland. For Bale, this was an affront, not only to the king but to himself, and refused to be ordained in this matter. Having had the archbishop backed him to a corner, he got his own way, eventually. It was, however, under protest from Lockwood, a man who Bale described as a blockhead and an ass-headed dean. Bale portrays his consecration and the fact that the second book of common prayer was not in use in great detail within his vocation. He states, 
If England and Ireland be under one king, they are both bound to the obedience of one law under him. Once the consecration had eventually taken place, Bale states that there being no turmoil among the people and every man saving the priest being well contented. He goes on to declare his views and his intent by saying that they set the hearts at rest, for he, Bale, had come to the Church of Ossory to execute nothing but according to the rules of the Book of Common Prayer. Bale also voiced his opinion when it came to the bread that was prepared for the communion of his consecration and the rules that were introduced to distinguish the Reformed from the Popish Act. To this end, although it says a lot of Bale's stance on the role of the king and what should or should not be done, it also explains why the Archbishop of Dublin consented to use the papist mode of Holy Communion at the time. This then was the beginning of Bale's tenure in Ireland. When Bale left for Kilkenny, the opposition he faced by both the church and the laity did not deter him from preaching with the intensity of his convictions. He found once in Kilkenny, as he did when he landed in Waterford, that even where the English liturgy was used, it was corrupted by Catholic superstitions. He tells the reader that the Holy Communion was used like a popish mass, and with the old apish ties of Antichrist in bowings and beckings, kneelings and knockings, the Lord's death, after St Paul's doctrine, neither preached nor spoken of. This should not have come as a surprise to Bale, as he mentions when he arrives in Dublin, he was welcomed, and much the people did greatly rejoice of our, Godacre and himself, coming hither, thinking by our preachings the Pope's superstitions would diminish and the true Christian religion would increase. Therefore, he knew at this point that the liturgy was not being utilised as it should be. Once in Kilkenny, he tells us that his first proceedings to the people and the churches of Kilkenny were to repent and give themselves up to the one God. This was not without adversaries, as Baal himself tells us. And the helpers I found none among my prebendaries and clergy, but adversaries a great number. It probably didn't help his cause when he destroyed all the shrines and statues within St Canice's Cathedral. For he states, but when I once sought to destroy the idolatries and dissolve the hypocrites' yokes, then followed angers, slanders, conspiracies, and in the end, the slaughter of men. This one act alone alienated the people. St Canice's was the focal point of Kilkenny. The internal decoration and windows were known not just in Ireland, but along the continent. And this, the stripping of the altars, as it is generally called, although a common occurrence in England, was unknown of in Ireland. Bishop David Roth, writing in the 17th century, called him a shameless ruffian and tells us that he did indeed destroy or disface the statues and pictures of the saints within the cathedral. But he did, however, leave the stained glass windows intact. This, coming three generations after the act, shows the impact he had within the diocese and on the memory of the people and the place. The aforementioned desecration not only offended the townspeople, it showed a disregard for their ancestors, their tombs and their history. The breaking point came when Baal attempted to compel the priests to marry. They were quite offended by this, as he tells us. 
Much were the priests offended also, for that I had in my preachings willed them to have wives of their own. His reasoning behind this was so they were not unshamefacedly occupying of other men's wives, daughters and servants. Baal was unsuccessful in his pursuits, and he admits that he could never yet by any godly or honest persuasion bring any of them to marriage, or, it is assumed from his writings, to leave other men's wives, daughters or servants alone either. He was also unable to get the majority to use the second book of common prayer due to the lewd example of the Archbishop of Dublin, who he believed was too lax in these matters. And from his tone, Bell was more than likely still holding a grudge against Brown with regards to his consecration and the alleged halving of his salary. This did not seem to slow Bell in his duties, preaching, albeit with opposition, until after the midsummer. Even with the death of the king, Baal continued to preach, and although there is not much information on other towns in Ireland, Baal's accounts, although biased, are of vital importance on the change from Protestant to Catholic in one particular diocese. He tells us on the 20th day of August, the Lady Mary, with us at Kilkenny, proclaimed Queen of England, France and Ireland. After regaling the reader with the proceedings, he then goes back to his normal way of writing by telling us what to do I had that day with the prebendaries and priests about wearing the cope, the crozier and mitre in procession. It was too much <coughs> to write. As a rebuttal to this, Bale proceeded to the market cross in the centre of Kilkenny, where he read Romans 13 to the public. It's up there for you to have a browse through. Um, even in the face of all the opposition, Bell still publicly and privately read his sermons and exalted the truths of the gospel as he saw them. Even with Mary on the throne and Catholicism the religion of the time, Bell was undaunted in his quest to convert the heathens. While staying at his manor in Upper Court, he sent servants to the fields on the feast day of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin, a Catholic holiday of strict observance. His servants were slaughtered and Baal barricaded himself inside Upper Court. This slaughter did not seem to prick at Baal's conscience, for when he sent a messenger out to find out more about the threats that had been made upon his life, he states, I sent my servant unto him as not desirous to be revenged. His unlikely saviour at this time was Robert Shee, the sovereign to Kilkenny, who sent men and horses to quell the townsfolk led by Barnaby Bulger. They wanted Baal gone, and this episode alone saw the end of Baal in Austria, as the next morning he fled from Kilkenny and made his way to Dublin. Austria and the city of Kilkenny were going through a turbulent time during this period. The dissolution, the religious reforms, and the void in the Ormond lordship was the backdrop of Baal's brief stay. The cadet branches of the Ormonds were breaking away without a proper head after the death of James Butler in 1546, who was a self-proclaimed Protestant. The Cahir Butlers joined forces once again with the Desmonds and large parts of Tipperary were lost. The Dunboyne branch began to govern themselves and become autonomous from the main branch. It was then left to Richard Butler, a staunch Catholic, first Viscount Mike Garrett and brother to James, who was comfortable in his religious ideals under Henry, which, in all essence, was Catholicism without the Pope. 
The upheaval of Edward VI's religious reforms made him uncomfortable, and so to have a zealot like Bell coming to the picture drove Mount Garrett to conspire with the Magillapatrics of Upper Osry to get rid of Bale. This is why the involvement of she in the rescue of Bale is so unexpected and shows that political manoeuvrings were the order of the day. She, although not enamoured with Bale, would rather see him gone than to have to explain the death of a bishop to the administration in Dublin. Although Bale had the patronage of the king, he was a fish out of water in Kilkenny. The alienation of people like Brown and Mount Garrett left him with no political allies who would support his reforms. Historians tend to look at Bale's work with regards to the Reformation, and at the time was highly influential. Although Bale wrote extensively on the Church and the Reformation, he was in his own time known as a historian. His summary of famous writers of Greater Britain and the expanding catalogues, for example, naturalises the forgeries of Giovanni Nani and incorporates them into British history, thus giving Britain a pre-Trojan history. Leslie Fairfield and Peter Happ have written biographies of John Bale, and they both dismiss him and his writings as fabrication. Fairfield calls him the mythmaker for English Reformation, while Happ claims that Bale's writings read like a piece of fiction. Although Bale's accounts of what took place in Kilkenny are embellished, that does not mean that there is no legitimate basis for what he writes. The writings of John Bale, whether his plays or sermons or the vocation, is a reminder that some of the works of reformers at this time were focused on their own salvation, reform and repentance, repentance than that of the church. We also discover that conversion was not a straightforward process of waking up one morning being Protestant. It was a process that had many facets, including uncertainty and insecurity of their own faith and that of the faith of the church. Another point that comes across with Bale is the differences between his English flock and the Irish one, and that patronage of the hierarchy of the time was essential to success or failure. Bishops themselves were not immune to this system of patronage. How was the Diocese of Austria affected by his presence? From the evidence we have, it wasn't really. He did manage to turn a few into ardent Protestants, but the majority were quite happy to throw these off when Mary was crowned. He did not institute any major doctrinal reforms or changes during his short stay, and it appears that despite official changes, Henry's Catholicism continued through Edward's reign with little subtleties. With regards to reforming the heathens, Bale had very limited success. If anything, due to his nature and the forcefulness of his teachings, Kilkenny at least was probably more Catholic on his departure from the city than it was before his arrival. His relationship with the Dublin administration, the clergy of his diocese and the people of Kilkenny was more or less non-existent. Even the local Protestant families such as the Cowleys and the Daniels were less than enamoured with such radical teachings and his radical Protestant views. He did, however, manage to reform to a certain extent and he did convert some to his own Protestant viewpoint. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts.
All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.